Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off, in-depth conversations in applied geophysics. In this episode, I speak with David Lumley on SEG's strategic pillars and the geophysicist's role in supporting space exploration and the medical field. In this illuminating conversation, David outlines how geophysics supports the grand challenges of our world, how geophysics could quantitatively contribute to the medical field, how universities and companies can encourage greater collaboration, and a valuable tip to become a better innovator. This conversation will help jumpstart your knowledge on how geophysics can keep innovating and improving this world and beyond. This episode is sponsored by CGG. In 1931, the year after Neil Armstrong was born and just three years after the discovery of penicillin, CGG began its geophysics journey. In the subsequent 90 years, it has seen extraordinary challenges across the world that have demanded adaptability and ingenuity so it can continue to help solve the world's most complex natural resource, environmental, and infrastructure challenges. At CGG, they're proud to be redefining what is possible by helping their clients to see things differently. For the link to David's article, visit seg.org podcast. Now for our conversation. So David, each month in the leading edge, the president's page is highlighting the SEG strategic pillars. And for March's The Leading Edge, you highlighted the pillars of innovation and collaboration. Generally, how do you see these two strategic pillars being essential to accelerate geophysical innovation? All right. Well, I think, you know, if you take a look at innovation over the years in in all areas, in all aspects, usually you see that the innovation is happening and major breakthroughs are occurring at boundaries, at boundaries between disciplines, boundaries, sometimes they're geographical boundaries or ocean and land boundaries. Anyway, those boundaries are where all the interesting stuff happens, I think. And so when you think about it that way, at least technology or science innovation, uh, that means those are boundaries between disciplines. So that means the mixing of, of multiple disciplines and the collaboration amongst, let's say, two or more disciplines that usually don't collaborate together, you know, stuff is going to happen. Really interesting stuff is going to happen. And, and I think that leads directly, uh, multidisciplinary collaboration leads to diverse teams. You know, if you want to have an innovative team that's looking at something, you need diversity on that team. And, and it's well known that diverse teams are more successful at solving problems because the diversity on the team, you have people with, with a wide range of perspectives, different experiences, life experiences, educational experiences, etc. Somebody on that team or a few people on that team are going to see things quite differently and come up with an innovative solution to whatever the problem is or whatever the research aspect is. So I, I think that's a natural combination of uh, the two, innovation and collaboration, go together very well if, if we want to uh, broaden our horizons in, in, in SEG and geophysics in general, which is what we definitely want to do. You know, one of the interesting things you said in the article was you 
you stated that you think we need to get back to a more holistic view of geophysics as part of the natural sciences and society. What do you mean by that? Okay, yeah. So, you know, I, I like to think of holistically as much as I can, you know, meaning look at the big picture. Uh, in addition to the, you know, the details that, that somebody might be an expert in. So the way I think about geophysics is, you know, 100 years ago, geophysics didn't even exist. There was no such thing as geophysics. You had the, you know, the individual disciplines of, let's say, physics and chemistry and geology and so forth. So, so when I look back over history and, and how things evolved, uh, in my view, geophysics was created in a way as a multidisciplinary discipline <laughs> um, from physics, electrical engineering, geology and earth sciences, mathematics, computing. All of those things were combined together in geophysics. Why? Uh, it was to help solve big global challenges. And at that time, 100 years ago, the challenge to humanity was really around energy and minerals, energy, exploring and finding energy to kind of power society, power the world, and minerals to build the world. So uh, geophysics really came together naturally because of that. May those maybe two major global challenges in energy and minerals. And then you see what happens over time is things become highly optimized, you know, the, the field of geophysics became highly optimized to do those things, explore, uh, characterize, produce energy and minerals. And uh, so they become very focused uh, over time on those specific applications. And at that point, you can start getting yourself into a silo, you know, where you're so focused on on details and really it sort of becomes engineering at that point, optimizing processes. So I think as geophysics, we need to step back again and take a, a bigger view, a more holistic view of what's going on around us and see how we can address today's grand challenges. And in particular, do it with a sustainable focus because, you know, the world is becoming a very populated place and we can no longer just expand into open space. We've, we've pretty well saturated all the space there is. And so now we have to switch gears. Uh, and you and I talked about this in a previous uh, podcast, switch our, our thinking from sort of deplete resources and move on to, to new areas to sustainability. And so when you look at today's grand challenges, there are things like climate change and mitigation of climate change, you know, the effects of climate change, carbon capture and storage, you know, to uh, stop emitting so many green, so much uh, greenhouse gas into the atmosphere, clean water, uh, something maybe we might call precision agriculture, how to optimize agriculture and food growth, managing the nitrogen cycle. Nitrogen, most people don't know, 
because of fertilizers and other things going on in, in our society, nitrogen is, is every bit as big a problem as CO2 in the atmosphere uh, today. It's just most people don't know about it. And then other things like medical imaging and space exploration that we're going to talk about today. So when you step back and say, hey, what are the, what are the grand challenges we need to solve today that 100 years ago were, were based on energy and minerals? There are lots of grand challenges, and I think geophysics maybe can come out of its high-precision, optimized focus that it's on today and uh, expand to these other areas. Well, speaking of other areas, I think a lot of people are familiar with ultrasound and how even maybe geophysical expertise can improve that particular medical tool. But I want to look at, in, in the article, you discuss these newer medical methods that I I hadn't even heard of. They use light sheets and non-invasive tracers and biochemical tags. Of all the new medical methods you are aware, which do you think could benefit the most from this geophysical collaboration and innovation working together with the medical field? All right. Yeah. So that's, that's a real good question. And I think, you know, when I, so I have had some involvement over the years in medical imaging research myself, and I, and I do, I'm surrounded by some colleagues who are very involved with that here at UT Dallas. And one thing that really strikes me is that to a large degree, medical imaging is still kind of in the philosophy of making images and those images need to be interpreted by medical specialists or doctors. So it's very much like the paradigm of seismic interpretation. You know, we make images of the earth and then we need specialists to interpret those seismic images to build a model or an interpretation of what's going on. Now, that whole process of making images and interpreting images is very powerful, but it's also qualitative and subjective. And uh, because we're looking at an image of something after all, not a physical property, not an estimate, a quantitative estimate of a physical property. And so uh, geophysics, and many people don't realize this, but there are many things that, that were invented uh, in geophysics and given to the rest of the world. And one of the most powerful methods is inversion, inverse problem theory. And that was developed by two um, famous, now famous geophysicists, Bacchus and Gilbert at, at Scripps back in the 1960s. And they realized you know, in geophysics, unlike a, a lot of other sciences, we don't, we're not able to go into a controlled laboratory environment and, you know, make as many measurements as we possibly want under quiet and noise-free conditions. We're, we're out in the real world. We never have enough sensors. We never have enough sources. There's lots of noises, etc. And so they developed a, a mathematical physics way of encapsulating all those issues and formulating ways to make quantitative estimates of physical properties in the earth with uncertainty analysis, given all of our shortcomings in terms of ability to make measurements, sampling, noise, et cetera, et cetera. So that collectively is called inversion or, or inverse uh, problem methods. So uh, that means instead of making an image, let's say, a seismic image, and have somebody interpret what type of 
geology it is, we make an inversion, let's say, for porosity. That's a physical property. And we give an uncertainty analysis or, you know, sand shale content or something like that. So in medical imaging, they're not at that stage yet. Uh, <laughs> they, they still make all these fantastic images. They are in controlled environments, but they interpret that something is, is happening medically in those images. And I think that one thing that we can help them move forward on is, uh, is developing more quantitative, less subjective methods to estimate physical properties and uncertainty analysis in the body. And that might mean things like direct detection of cancer cells versus an interpretation that, you know, in the image that looks like cancer cells. So, so that's what I think is going to be the biggest uh, breakthrough if we can contribute to that. Well, kind of switching gears, uh, not kind of, kind of uh, moving gears entirely here. What could be geophysics' greatest contribution to understanding other planets? Right. So that, that definitely is switching gears. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. We're, we're covering lots of scales here. Well, you know, the, the, the two main exploration interests in, in planetary science are the interior structure of planets, is one, and the other is is the surface morphology. In terms of the interior, one thing that's of really big interest is the interior structure, and particularly if that planet had uh, at one time now or in the past had a liquid outer core, because if it did or does, then you've got the dynamo effect. It means it could have had or may still have a way to generate a magnetic field, and suddenly that protects that planet from all kinds of uh, cosmic radiation and solar wind particles, etc., and, and you might be able to establish an atmosphere. So, so that's a big one that geophysics can contribute to because that's, we're really good at that, determining interior structure of planets through, through seismic and gravity measurements and and EM measurements and all kinds of geophysical measurements. The other one is the surface morphology. And uh, a big one there is trying to find evidence for plate tectonics, you know, from the surface. Also the subsurface, but particularly on the surface. Because if there was or currently is plate tectonic activity uh, on a planet, that means there are chances that there might be water in the system somewhere. Uh, on the surface or in the subsurface. Plate tectonics is generally recycling all the materials, including water, and, and causing lots of systems that lead to carbon cycles, water cycles, etc. And of course, those kind of cycles are very important for habitability, which everybody is interested in. You know, is there evidence for life on those planets in the past or maybe still currently life on the planets in, in some form we might not be expecting. So uh, in those two ways, uh, geophysics has huge contributions to make in terms of interior structure and surface morphology of planets for all those reasons. You know, you're, you're working in a university, and, and I'm 
kind of interested, you know, as geophysics has been a multidisciplinary activity and is trending ever more so that way, how might universities and companies even start to encourage deeper collaboration across the different natural sciences? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's on my mind a lot, actually, because, you know, I'm, I'm thinking a lot these days about how to rebuild our department. And I think a lot of others are too, because because our whole environment <laughs> is changing quite a bit, and we we need to adapt. You know, make sure we stay relevant in geophysics. So, so one way I think is, you know, as we discussed earlier, getting back to this holistic view, we need to encourage collaboration, uh, multidisciplinary collaboration. And uh, to get back to this holistic view of solving these grand challenges, and what does that mean at a university? I think it means things like joint appointments of faculty, geophysics faculty, in in various other areas, uh, departments, schools, etc., in natural sciences and engineering. I think that would be a huge benefit because it would facilitate better and more interesting collaborative research projects, you know, to better address uh, NSF challenges, Department of Energy, EPA environment, etc. And also those joint appointments would just freshen up and bring new perspectives to, to teaching joint courses. So, you know, it's one thing if you have a person uh, teach a course on, let's say, a seismic imaging inversion like I do to geophysics uh, students. It's another thing if I was to partner up and collaborate with one or two other disciplines, whether they be in chemistry or engineering or medical or whatever, and we taught a joint course together, each taking the best of our methods and, and techniques to focus them on a wide array of topics. That, those would be fascinating courses. So I, so I think that's what should happen at universities, and that's what I'm interested in doing anyway. In companies, in industry, there's a similar way to do things like that, and, and it used to be done, and you don't see it as much today anymore, but I think it'd be good to get back to it. And that is some companies were quite progressive about offering sabbaticals to their you know, key employees and say, hey, would you like to do a sabbatical for, you know, some period of time, three to six months, maybe a year at a university or a government research lab or maybe some other innovative company like Google that's that's not a competitor, you know. And those key employees, I think, would be quite energized by that to do something like that. And you know they're going to come back with just a, a zillion ideas, <laughs> bring them back to their companies of, of new, uh, new and terrific things that they could do. So I think, I think those joint appointments and sabbaticals and, and getting out of, uh, out of your comfort zone and bringing all kinds of new ideas back to, to university and, and companies would be a smart thing to do. And, of course, that goes right back to addressing some of these grand challenges we spoke of. I am curious if there is a resource, uh, a book, a class, a talk you think that would help geophysicists better understand innovation and collaboration. And I know for me, one thing that came to mind is I read Creativity Inc. a while back, which is by Ed Catmull, who co-founded Pixar and was just kind of about how they create their movies and that creative process. 
So I was wondering if anything kind of comes to mind that has been helpful to you to think about how to how to deepen this innovation and collaboration, uh, maybe even across different fields. Sure. Yeah, there is. Or at least I can say what, what I like to do. And so one thing I can say is that because of the nature of my job, I just do tons of reading, <laughs> too much <Yeah>. reading, <laughs> you know, whatever it might be, research papers, uh, you know, assignments, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, what helps me is, uh, is, is to get out and do an activity, do some activities that really get me out of my comfort zone, uh, you know, something completely different. And uh, I think those are things that, uh, those kind of activities that require you to think fast on your feet, you know, uh, do some spontaneous problem solving. So that can be like playing sports or scenario gameplay, uh, treasure hunt, navigation races where, where you have to find something and navigate on the fly. Uh, and improvisation, those things are all re- related together. And by improvisation, I mean music or art or improv theater or stand-up comedy or something. Just just do some activities like that. And I have a good example for me. Some years ago um, at my summer cabin, I met up with these these old bluegrass guys. So so I'm a guitarist. And uh, bluegrass wasn't really my, I mean, I like it, but I, I didn't really play too much of it. So I joined these guys. They're all they're all about a hundred years old <laughs> and they're awesome players, you know? And so they said, why don't you come to our bluegrass jam? It's every uh, Sunday afternoon at this certain place and anybody can come and we take turns. And so I came down there, you know, with my guitar and, you know, and, and it, it was amazing because they're awesome players. And so I just trying to keep up with them, you know. And of course, when it came around my turn, I played them something to throw them a curveball. But <laughs> but just I just love that, you know, be, being sort of, you know, you have to be on your toes, watch for all these crazy chord changes and, <laughs> and things. And that kind of activity, whatever it might be, really puts your brain in a different place, I think, where you're, you're kind of forced to think fast on your feet and and innovate and improvise and things like that. So that's my recommendation. And it certainly works for me is to rather than read a book, because I've, I've got way too much reading already. I just, I want to get out there and, and throw myself, you know, into something that's, that's way out of my comfort zone and, and see if I can, you know, keep my, my head above water. And, and I usually do. And I usually really, really enjoy it. Well, that is a, a great place to leave it. I'm, I'm sure as we're now starting to connect back to society, more of these uh, type of un, you know, uncomfortable situations will be able to, to help and push people. So thank you for highlighting this and writing this article, David, and excited to see what the next, what the future holds in, in these areas. Yeah, well, very good, Andrew. And thanks uh, for inviting me to talk. It's, it's always a pleasure and always very interesting. Thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast, Seismic Sound Off. SEG produces these episodes to benefit its members, the geophysics community, and inform the public on the value of the science. To show your support for the show, please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this show. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. 
Go to the website at seg.org forward slash podcast to find all the episodes and learn how you can subscribe for free directly on your phone. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by Andrew Gary at 51 Features. The SEG podcast team is Ted Bacomjian, Jennifer Crockett, Ali McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.